0: This is Laura Headland, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap and someone deeply excited, deeply excited by the promise of natural solutions to climate change. Joining us today is Rich Biscay, the Director of Protection for the Nature Conservancy of Minnesota. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Okay, so tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, so I work for the Nature Conservancy. I lead our protection program for minnesota north dakota and south dakota and i also currently am leading our work in freshwater conservation and providing food and water sustainably or agricultural work and so i've been doing that for the last uh, eight or nine years um, and i uh, been with the conservancy for over 17 years totally and uh i've really enjoyed uh, being here and uh, making a difference for nature and people
0: so I think most of our listeners have certainly heard of the Nature Conservancy, but um, tell us about the organization.
1: Sure, we're a we're a five hundred one c three nonprofit organization. we um, we started as a land trust, so we protect lands um, for people in nature. But over the years, we've evolved, um, really focusing on biodiversity, but evolved to look at landscapes and real whole systems, right, that affect nature, biodiversity, and the people that live within these landscapes. We're active in all 50 states. I think it's over 70 countries around the world. We're quite large. Um, We're science-based. We believe in kind of, um, you know, pragmatic solutions, working with many different partners. Everything we do is in partnership, um, both here and abroad.
0: So why does the Nature Conservancy have a focus on agriculture? So describe what the focus is and the reason behind it.
1: Sure. Well, agriculture, particularly within the upper Midwest, but also globally, is if our interest is in you know protecting and improving biodiversity, both terrestrial systems and freshwater systems um, and really healthy landscapes and communities that live with them, we need to work within the agricultural space. Um I think agriculture poses an opportunity um, to, um, to, you know, challenges, I will say, and, and risks to the natural environment, freshwater and terrestrial systems, but also a great opportunity. You know, now we're seeing it within climate change. So our work uh, as an organization in agriculture has evolved, too, uh, from very, you know, much like the organization, very site-based, you know, working one-on-one with farmers to really moving up into working on larger systems, um, which we feel is necessary to make a difference.
0: And so one of the sentences I've heard I read on your website is that it's time to retire the idea that conservation and agriculture are automatically at odds. So um, tell me what you meant by that. Yeah, or, or what um, is this?
1: No, and I, I think it goes to this point where we – I think particularly within the conservation world, we have viewed like agriculture as a threat um, to conservation. And one of the the limitations, right, within working to that space is that it doesn't always create an environment for progress and moving forward and working together. And so and th- this is a foundation of who we are as an organization. We need to understand agriculture and we need to find a way for how it fits within conservation, how it can work together. Um, and I think by having that lens that helps shape our philosophy, we're not just reacting to what agriculture does to natural systems. We're looking to how do we, you know, actually move past understanding agriculture to actually shaping it so it minimizes um, environmental impact and can function in a way to also sustain, you know, um, natural systems.
0: So a lot of this can sound kind of abstract, but let's bring it down to a real life example. So let's talk about Farmer Matt Hansen. So tell us about Farmer Matt Hansen. Oh God, um,
1: yeah. This is one of so Matt. Uh, it's like what's really great about this job. So I, I um, I'm fortunate to work across three states, but for eight or nine years I worked in Southeast Minnesota, lived and worked uh, in the Driftless area. It's a place that I uh, love dearly. And there's wonderful people there. And so one of the things the Conservancy was interested in is finding ways to store water on a landscape. Kind of this point of how do we how do we make agriculture a compatible use within freshwater systems? And you know, in, in a way, you know, Matt and, and and I had similar interests, right? So he wanted to stay on his farm. He owns um, land along the, the Root River and it was He was he was farming it. Um, He was doing. He also has a a cow calf operation, and he wanted to. He didn't want to lose his productive land, Um, but he knew that it couldn't be. um, The the cropping just wasn't working. And so what we decided to do was like, well, what if we set up like a grazing system, and what if we use not just uh, more cool season grass or low diversity, but we put like a higher diversity of native grass in there allowed the floodplain to flood when it will um, and get the cows out of there when we think it's going to flood. And when the waters go down, let the cows go back and graze that diverse native floodplain. And he, he really liked the idea um, and it didn't exist previously. So we had to work around, you know, some existing state uh, programs, but it was just a great example of how a landowner, again, a, a farmer, in conservation, when we kind of put our put our minds together, we understand the issue, pretty similar issues actually, um, shared perspective, and kind of come up with the solution together. Uh, and so the result is, you know, Matt doesn't lose a, a corn crop every few years. Um, he gets a pretty stable pasture, and the river is cleaner for it because it's not picking up sediment nutrients, you know, flowing down the Chatfield.
0: So the wisdom of watching and listening to nature and then having a food system that works hand in hand with nature um, by, you know, taking that time to really reflect on um, healthy systems and what makes a healthy system. So again, what Matt was experiencing with his land is a lot of flooding. So you want to talk about some of the problems he observed on, a, on the land when he was following some of the more um, common approaches?
1: Yeah, well, it was, it was, Again, it was in, influenced by the river, and I think it was he he wanted to do he wanted to crop that because it's also really fertile ground, right? Floodwaters come, keeps it nice and wet, drops really nutrient rich soil and sediment there, and it's, it's quite productive. So I, I think his previous perspective was, I'd really t- take advantage of this and, and get a pretty good crop," but the river didn't agree with that. Um, and we wouldn't mind talking about why you know, the, the flooding issues that we have too.
0: Yeah, let's um, talk about that. So what's the problem with the flooding issues when it comes to environmental?
1: Yeah, so we've had, you know, this has been kind of a slow buildup to what our flooding issues are right now. Granted, we're coming out of a couple of droughts here and we're not more than a couple months away from a, another drought in Minnesota, but um, we've changed our landscape so much, right? So we will. We can talk more about, how we've lost the soil's ability to hold carbon, but we've also lost the soils and landscape's ability to hold water, right, to, to absorb, the you know, not just our historic rains, but now add on these, you know, pretty intense rain events that we're having on a, a, a fairly, you know, you know, altered system that doesn't have the ability to hold waters. And so it's hitting our, our streams and rivers at a pretty fast rate, um, and staying there. So we have these increased flood frequencies and it's not, um, the intense, these intense events are moving around too. So it's not any sort of chronic area. It could really happen anywhere. Um, and that's, that's a function of what we've done to our landscape, how we've decided to, um, grow food on it in some places, how we've built on it, impervious surfaces. And now we're really seeing it being exasperated by Climate change and the extreme events that were having.
0: And so, what were some of the natural-based solutions that uh, farmer uh, Matt Hansen took? Uh,
1: so, a couple of things. One, he, he took it out of crop production that floodplain and restored the um, restored that floodplain into diverse grass mix. So, these are really deep-rooted grasses that are thick too. So, they have a um, Like a they really slow water down as they come through. And um, there was some work that was being done in conjunction with DNR fisheries to stabilize the banks along the the river there. Because, you know, these flood events have also resulted in quite a bit of bank erosion, which contributes to sediment. Um, So it was, it was great. I got a call one day from him and he said, you know, DNR is out there working on the bank, right, for trout habitat. And he's like, do you think if I go ask them, they would put a, like a wetland scrape out in the field? I'm like, I, I think they might. And so he's like, well, that, that would be okay with the program. I said, that sounds great. And so he literally did just, you know, ran across the road, caught the person in a, a dozer and said, would you put some wetland scrapes back in this field? And of course, that's what would have been there historically, right? So when these rivers come into the floodplain, they're scouring out these braided channels in meander belts that, you know, as we've cropped them and tilled them over time, we've smoothed out those old channels in meander belts. So what, what Matt really identified was these chronically low areas that was an old meander belt. And he had just the vision right there to say, let's bring it back. And so uh, that's one of the elements that he added to it. Um, a couple reasons that's important, right? So one it um, it allows for more storage in the floodplain, but it also creates great habitat. I mean, that's where we have our, our spring peepers, our frogs, um, you know, turtles are nesting in there and they wouldn't have that habitat if he hadn't uh, thought of it at the time and took advantage of somebody with a, a dozer.
0: Yeah, and um and so uh and also um he got some payment from the easements and it allowed him to buy more land with and also reduced then had lower incidences of flooding and now the trout and the bass flourish here um, a significant improvement over the carp and suckers that he reeled in with his grandfather so how do he have farmers and soil and uh, regenerative agriculture and um how do, how do humans act in a land on the way in the land that Focuses on abundance, the natural abundance, and how do we do that as a food system. We're talking with the Nature Conservancy about agriculture and climate. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio. Uh. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining me now is the Director of Protection for the Nature Conservancy in Minnesota, Rich Biscay. And, Rich, so agriculture and conservation do not have to be at odds with each other. You
1: no, know, and I think this has been kind of a misconception over the years, that there are compatible, you know, shared uses. And, you know, more and more we're thinking of them in terms of not, not just agricultural lands or conservation lands, but there can be working lands, right? So these are, are lands that, you know, we were just talking about Matt Hansen's project where you can still raise beef on them and you can still get, you know, flood attenuation and habitat from them. And that's where I think we really need to kind of look forward to and, and kind of break down some of the misunderstanding about this um, and and kind of be a little more flexible, too, in our program. You know, that was one of the issues that Matt encountered. He wanted to do this, but there wasn't a program you know, and oftentimes, you know, government or conservation programs, um, can be limited, right. Um, mm-hmm. and we need to be flexible to meet producers where they're at and allow for these working lands. So, you know, since that project, you know, a few years ago, there's been more, um, working lands programs that allow for, for grazing. Um, I think animal, um, agriculture getting livestock, uh, on grass and perennial cover is really important and it can be compatible with, with water water management and carbon sequestration. So that's one of the things that we've been working on with state agencies over recent years to increase um, funding and opportunity for these working plants. Well,
0: I think this is a very important phrase natural solutions to climate change. natural solutions to climate change. So what do you think of when you think of natural solutions to climate change?
1: It's, it's the power of photosynthesis. I mean, it, it seems too simple, but it's really just the power of photosynthesis. I mean, allow plants to absorb and grow. Um, it, it's natural, right? To keep li- continuous living cover on the landscape, allow them to grow, um, to store carbon in the soil, um, allow them to provide all the environmental services that come with it. Um, so what, you know, examples being really, keeping grass intact, you know, restoring grasslands, um, reforesting areas. We've lost, you know, a million acres of forest historically in Minnesota, putting some of those back to forest. Um, and then within our, our, our croplands make a concerted effort to ensure that we reduce tillage, stop letting carbon out and start putting some back in with, you know, cover crops, continuous living cover and crop rotations.
0: Yeah, and uh, I mean Minnesota has such deep, um, rich soil that held so much carbon um, before colonization, um, and um, and and so we we're facing multiple crises with that. Let's let's talk a little bit about some of the problems with agriculture, how it how it is currently commonly pers- um, how it how it's commonly uh, done in Minnesota. What are some of the problems with it, environmentally speaking?
1: Well, I, I think there's some, there's some trade-offs with it, right? And so we're seeing that. And as, as I mentioned before, as as soils were broken, we've lost that organic matter within it, um, lost the ability of the soil to absorb water and carbon. Um, those can be repaired, though, right? So the result is, is we also have, um, you know, higher runoff rates. Um, and so when we lose more, when we have higher runoff, we can lose more nutrients that were put in there or that were there, um, but also, you know, we're still losing sediment, right? So that topsoil and having it exposed, you know, we're seeing more of it blowing, right? So we think a lot about like water erosion. We get these intense events. Some of us will see, you know, stream getting mercury or something, but we shouldn't dismiss these high winds will You know, we had a dry couple of years and that, you know, high winds and the loss of soil um, during springtime, we can do something about this, right? I mean, these are these are things that we can take action on by reducing tillage, um, by establishing cover crops, by um, modifying the crop rotations that we're using to um, to get again get more cover on the ground. Get,
0: get more cover. cover. So let's do a deep dive into uh, what are crop cover crops. Let's let's talk do a kind of a deeper dive into what are cover crops and. How many farmers now do cover cropping?
1: Yeah, there's there's a there's a, a broad range of cover crops used. I mean, turnips. Um, I would say the most common one is is rye, cereal rye. Um, some oats will be used, and then there's um, there's a full range, right? So you can have a, a you know cover crop cocktail, as they say, of um, variety of uses. And typically, they're put down you know after harvest sometimes I think some of the more effective ones are put down while they're still a standing crop so when um, they have a higher opportunity to emerge and as for current rates um, I was trying to look up what I don't have the data from last year but for a long time Minnesota was under four um, percent cover crop use and you could um, you could tell there's nodes of it going on and we could talk more about what those nodes might represent but I I suspect it's still under ten percent in Minnesota.
0: And so, um, why why is this? I mean, this is cover cropping. Um, the benefits of cover cropping are that it helps the soil. Um, well, what are the benefits of cro- cover cropping?
1: Uh, a couple things. One, any sort of you know plant growing above the soil to intercept the energy of a raindrop is valuable because don't underestimate the power of one raindrop exposed soil um, but then it's what it's doing underground right it's putting root cover in it's it's taking up loose you know unused nutrients and, and keeping them from being released um, and it's building that organic matter back up the longer that root um, root material is there
0: um so why has there been such a slow uptake why don't why doesn't why is it only why is it certainly less than ten percent five five percent why why don't almost all of our farmers do cover cropping What's the holdup?
1: Well, I think there's some some very real logistical reasons, and then likely some perceived reasons. So there are higher adoption rates in other parts of the country, you know, Indiana, Maryland, where they have maybe been doing it longer too. So that could be like a historical, cultural type barrier. Um, there has been a perception in Minnesota that it's it's too cold. There's not enough time. Um, Unfortunately, that might be changing with climate change. Um, so I think there is a tighter window, right, to get establishment at, at the fall of the year. Um, and then a, a small window during planting season, too, right? So once those cover crops are there prior to it. But the, the logistical barriers um, have been a few things. One, I think it's this experience and comfort level of using them and what the potential impacts are Um and the know, you know, it's a management question about how do you how do you use them in a way that have you know, not just an environmental benefit, but also an agronomic benefit um, and not an agronomic liability, right, for their other kind of cash crops. So I think um, technical know-how and experience is one barrier. Um, the other one is equipment, right? So there's, you know, equipment's expensive and it has a long um, life, as you as advertise it out. And so having planting equipment available at the right time and in the right geography has been a limiting factor. And then, um, you know, management in the, in the springtime too. So there's, um, those are some barriers. I, I will say, um, and the, the conservancy has been really, uh, working on this is recognizing the importance of farmer advisors in this. So it's, um,
0: So we're going to take a break. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio and we're talking with the Nature Conservancy in Minnesota about um, conservation and agriculture working hand in hand. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone deeply excited by the promise of natural solutions to climate change. Uh, joining us now is the direction, Director of Protection for the Nature Conservancy in Minnesota, Rich Biscay and uh, Rich, before we went on um, break, you were talking, we were talking some more about cover cropping and it it has a slow uptake. A lot of Minnesota, only less than 5% of Minnesota farmers are using cover cropping. So let's talk about some of the economic reasons behind that. Does the system reward farmers for healthy soils?
1: Well, um, so there's a couple ways to look at it. I think one is, um, from a market standpoint and, and not just cover crops, but what these continuous living crops are, is having a place to sell it. So I think to, to date, it's been viewed as um, a conservation practice that's been supported by, you know, public funding, say farm bill dollar, USDA, or state cost share. I think the real means to expand the use of it is is, is to make it marketable, right? So make it another crop. Um, and that, that's exciting, right? Because then it's maybe not just cereal rye, but it's, it's these oh. other crops that the University of Minnesota are developing and others. And so it can be, um, can be a second crop. It could be valuable, right? It, it could be something that, you know, isn't a hassle, isn't a nicety, but it is, it is a way to incorporate real marketable, um, getting back to this kind of compatible uses, right? How do we, um, how do we get a cropping system that rewards um, market that rewards environmental stewardship.
0: And healthy food, right? Oats are really healthy, yeah. right? From, the soil's right. healthy, we're eating the healthier food, and, and finding ways to incorporate that in the supply chain and, and make it normal, normalizing um, eating these cover crops and understanding the value of them.
1: Yeah, and so there, there's that value of it, right, and then how it comes back to, to us, but it's also understanding the complexities to all this, right? You know, the the know how of what these crops are, how they perform, you know, how to use them, and then um, how do you how do you manage it, right? So I think this is, you know, it's in some ways it's exciting and, and to be in, you know, I I think there's wonderful work going on in the space, um, but it's an opportunity for I think those of us in the kind of the nonprofit conservation sector, but also The public sector that I think for a a long time has looked at, you know, um, incentivizing these practices, you know, individual by individual is how do we look at incentivizing this more complex system, right? That can be a market into itself and not a one off. And I think that's where, you know, from the Conservancy's perspective, we're really interested in kind of building a cadre of Farm advisors, trusted advisors within the agricultural sector that have this understanding, have a level of comfort to the point that they're willing to not just talk about this, but to work with their clientele to incorporate some of this.
0: And so I'm going to go back to the example of farmer Matt Hansen. And so his native grasses cost about $300 an acre to plant the cover crops. He saw more pheasants. He got thanked by his neighbors because the trout came back in the trout stream. Um, And then I I still don't, I mean, I do think as a community, we also want to make sure that, you know, Matt gets a fair return for that effort and for having healthier soils. And so how we do that as a community is, I think, um, the work for now.
1: Yeah, um, so I, I mentioned there's these nodes of cover crops. So when I, I lived in, in Fillmore County, we worked on some cover crop projects, and you could see it year over year, right? So there there has been this. I think some perceptions over time that once, like you get your 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 field tilled up and it's you know it's black, it's ready to go next year, like that. Sometimes was perceived positively. I don't think it's the case anymore. But what I noticed when we would do these cover crop projects in concentrated areas is you start seeing green in November, right? So like, you know, around early November you got the crops and maybe interseeded, they sprouted up and then year over year you started seeing more green, right? So it it becomes, it builds this momentum upon itself that it's not an outlier anymore. It's not somebody experimenting. There's a staying pop, that visual staying power in terms of driving around your community, right? Your place. In um, making these things more acceptable. Um, and it would be great till we get to a point where, you know, that's the majority. Right. Right. So we, right. we have it's it's not it's not a fluke. Right. It's not a rarity. But um, we just see more green.
0: That's great. And I, I remember, and I, I'm not going to remember the exact year. It might have been the 80s, the 90s, or maybe the 70s. It's a little blurry to me. But Land Stewardship Project had a, um, a, they had a wonderful play. They, they went out into the rural area and they were putting on these plays about why you, you don't want that your soil all, all black, you want it green in the winter. And, you know, and, and so it took a lot of work, but it is, it is coming up there and I'm, I'm hoping that we can scale it so that um, cover cropping becomes um, ubiquitous in the state of Minnesota. So I also want to talk, you've also partnered um, with something called the Tri Societies. So what, tell us a little bit about this partnership.
1: So this is really to get to the farm advisors. Um, so these are agronomists, soil scientists um, that farmers and agribusiness look to, right, for their advice. These are these are the professional consultants. And um, so one of the things we do is understand their perspective, what kind of services they're offering, but also break down some of the um, misunderstandings around soil health practices and make, develop coursework, right? So they get credits, like many of us in professional societies, you get credits for being part of that, um, and you need to. And so working on training programs um that they can get credits make it part of their business and then put some science behind it too so working with you know partners at purdue and other you know well-trusted institutions that they listen to for other things um start listening about these um, soil health and uh, practices one of the what i've really been you know surprised by is is not just to go, you know, you can go do a training and then you kind of leave it and sometimes you may or may not apply it, but you got your two continuing education credits or something. And so the, our, our team developed a, a soil health kit. And so if you go through the training, you get everything you need to start doing this. And when you have something physical, something tangible, um, it, it's a constant reminder, right? That it's sitting there in the truck or something. I should use this, um, and I think that's been a, a real positive development for us, and one that we like to uh, hope
0: to continue. So there's an ecosystem services market consortium. What does that mean? I, I like the title, ecosystem services marketing consortium.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a mouthful. Um, this is it's it's a descriptive title, right? It's um, it's a way for. Um, nonprofits and companies to start to invest in ecosystem services. So this is, you were kind of talking about this before. This has been the space of the, the public sector for a long time is to, to pay for um, environmental uh, practices. This is a way for, for companies to actually look at their supply chain, right? Where they might be having impact and reinvest their dollars into, um, conservation practices and not just for, for, um, for say carbon, right. But also to look at water infiltration water volume. And so the conservancy has been working in a a pilot project in Minnesota to use private dollars, to reinvest into farms, to implement nutrient reduction practices, soil health cover crops, and also edgy fields. We're really interested on, you know, where are those sensitive areas that, if we were to put them into diverse grass plantings, that could filter filter out water and also really understand the value that they have for infiltration.
0: And one of the other things is that you work on rental land, which is always, you know, if someone's a lot of the farmers are renting land, but you want to reach those people as well. So what kind of work do you do in that area?
1: Yeah, the... Um, so that non-operator landowners are one, and this is a partnership. Um, and I think this is, I'm really glad you brought that up because it goes unnoticed. I, I've heard statistics that it's, you know, maybe over 60% of, of farmland is, is rented. And some of these practices we're talking about, um, they, will, they will take years, right, to return a, um, to have a return on not just, All the environmental performance, but also, you know, production performance to build up organic matter and so on. And that's a commitment. And I really think this is a point where, um, the renters and their advisors are, um, able to articulate that to, to the landowner. Like this is worthwhile. It's in their best interest to allow for this to happen and and maybe even, um, consider it in their agreements because if you implement these practices, there there will be the return, um, but it's going to need some support on the front end,
0: right? Because I mean, we can get kind of I can I can get I don't know about we, but you know, it it can get depressing thinking about um, how my species is interacting um, on this beautiful blue marble or Earth, and you know, the biodiversity loss, the climate change, the inequities, all of this. Um, all of these consequences of our current economic and ways of being. But then I think the way out of that is to have an economy, and, and some people are even using the phrase economy of love, or the economy of respect, or economy that just recognizes that life is more than uh, that, that life is a, that, that it has sacred dimensions, or that it's more complex. It's this, um, I'm not sure how to even put it in words, but but as we have an economic system that, um, is connected to, uh, kindness and, um, to health and well-being, um, and, um, but, but then you still gotta pay the bills and, and, you know, and how am I gonna make my money? And so, you know, to, to find these, um, off ramps, uh, uh, of the, uh, conventional system, um, that works for all. And that seems like that's the work of the Nature Conservancy of Minnesota is to help facilitate um, a transition to a, a, a more kind um, and sane um, um, agricultural system.
1: Yeah, um, it's, it's a nice description there. I, I think it is. And um, sometimes I have to check something. It's called... Irrational impatience, right? Because we, <laughs> we have these visions of what we, what we want, right? And then you open your eyes back up and then you have the, some of those realities and the constraints in which we, we operate. And I, um, I really do think we need to be conscious of how long it's taken this system to evolve and then a period in which it has been solidified. And there's so many, there's you know, cultural, historical, there, there's a lot of um, things that the, that it's rooted in. And so, if we, but we have to do something. We can't just kind of throw our hands up. And um, <laughs> and so it, it does require us to meet everyone, um, most people.
0: Yeah, so meet. Um, we're talking to, uh, the, we're talking with the Nature Conservancy of Minnesota about agriculture and conservation. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining me now is the director of protection for the nature conservancy in minnesota rich biscay and uh, rich um, you know one of the things we we're talking about earlier is it's time to retire the idea that conservation and agriculture are automatically at odds we just gotta i mean we're humans we need to eat <laughs> and, and and we need a planet that's sustainable for future generations these are not at odds these are complementary so what are some of the public policy type of work you're doing in this area
1: yeah um so we we were just talking about kind of soil health and those logistical barriers to it. Um, there, um, the conservancy and others have been working on kind of supporting these new pathways, right? And that is the technical assistance, making making resources available to the the private sector, right, to become more fluent and understanding to talk to their clientele,s to help help farmers on this transition to improve soil health. Um, and so there's a, a program available now, and I, I know the, um, it's, there's another, um, support working through the, the legislature this year, um, both for that assistance, but also to overcome this equipment barrier, right? So get more of this equipment on the land for new businesses to start up that can offer soil health services, right? If, if, if one of the concerns is that farmers don't have the time or the equipment to do it, well, Maybe somebody would be willing to do it for them
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, for a service or even farmers to to have access, um, maybe enough incentive to push them over to get some of this equipment that can plant cover crops and, and reduce tillage. So that's um, it's in a pilot phase right now. So there's actually a grant open right now through I think the end of March um, and there will be funding um, if successful um, coming out again in the, in the coming year.
0: That's making a switcher. I think that's important. Yeah. Um, And Um, any other policy issues you want to mention?
1: Yeah, I I do think, um, I'm really glad you brought up the Matt Hansen example. I think this notion of working lands, right, supporting landowners to have perennial cover and have it in place and recognizing the role of conservation and agriculture together um, is important. So there's... um, there's some proposed funding to increase uh working lands, conservation easements and support. And then I'll um, a couple other things. Um, water storage is important. So we, we talked about flooding and having floodplains um, protected and connected is important. But we, we need to we need to store more water on the landscape. We can do it through soil health, but the reality is is we're also gonna need to bring some of our wetlands back. We're going to need to put these natural kidneys back on the landscape to hold water, to treat it, um, and to create some resilience back in the system. Right, that can support even through droughty periods. So that's one, and um, it's important to acknowledge the role of soil and water conservation districts in the state of Minnesota. Soil and water districts are the local representation for for conservation in their neighborhood, in their counties in the watersheds. And uh, finally, there's some real momentum about providing some support for them to to keep staff levels up and to allow them to provide these essential services to to landowners, whether it's soil health or wetlands or, you know, you name it. they, They really provide a lot of different services.
0: I want to again mention this phrase, uh, natural solutions to climate change. So Minnesota's prairies, wetlands, peatlands, forests, and farmlands all can store an intense amount of carbon in plants and in the soil. These natural and working lands have the potential to sequester enough carbon to achieve one third of Minnesota's goals to cut the emissions by 2030. So this is really vital stuff, and I know it can be kind of hard to wrap our head around it, but... um, but how we how we come and it's actually about um, being reciprocal with the natural world, and as, as both as individuals and learning for a system to be reciprocal with the natural world, and include and increasing our capacity to do so.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's really true. So we're Minnesota is a is a really interesting state. I mean we're um, it's roughly I mean take all the developed area it's half forested and it's half agricultural, right, between cropland and, you know, pasture and so on. And so we talk about natural climate solutions. Those are our natural assets, right? How What a better way for us to kind of, you know, not just make a contribution to, to kind of, climate, you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but also to kind of reinvest in our, I would say, two of our greatest natural assets in this state in helping them perform better. Right. And not not just from greenhouse gas reduction, but being resilient to a changing climate. Right. To continue to provide food, to continue to provide fiber. Um, and I think that's what natural climate solutions really offers is kind of helping us, guiding us and how we, we we use these um, wonderful um Natural
0: areas. Uh, the National Audubon Society and twenty twenty two had a report that uh, natural climate solutions could deliver up to twenty three percent of the U S commitment to draw down greenhouse gas emissions that was um, in the Paris um, Agreement in the twenty sixteen appearance Agreement. So it's it's very powerful, and it's also a place of unity. I mean, we got to make sure that. Um, that, that, you know, that, that we're meeting all needs at the same time and not, you know, how, how do we, and this, um, so how do we, how do we really uh, ramp up these natural solutions to climate change?
1: Yeah, well, it starts with some of what the policy is this year. It's, it's making those investments um, in agricultural lands and forest lands um, and getting people on board to see it's not. It's in our best interest as a landowner, as a, as a forester, as a farmer, um, because when we, we use these natural climate solutions, we're making it more resilient, right? We're, um, and so our lands can continue to be productive for whatever that end is.
0: Um, agriculture and conservation can coexist and be profitable to both individuals and the ecosystem at the same time. And it's also uh, maybe part of moving from a scarcity to an abundance um, possibilities. And, I mean, I will just talk a little bit about Forever Green and some of that work going on at the University of Minnesota is also very promising for um, ecological uh, food production.
1: Yeah. Um, I think this is something Minnesota should be really proud of is the Forever Green initiative and having really some visionary leaders you know, that that looked at really creating new cropping systems, you know, going back to our point earlier about having um, marketable crops that um, both, you know, provide alternatives for farmers, but also, you know, environmental benefits. Um, and it's it's multiple. It's not just one thing. Right. Um, and I think now is an exciting phase of how those cropping systems, the understanding of, of managing them are incorporated into the existing system.
0: Uh, Rich Biscay, um, Director of Protection, the Nature Conservancy in Minnesota. Uh, last minute, anything else you'd like to say, perhaps the website or how people can learn more?
1: Yeah, nature.org. Um, you can find us. Um, for Minnesota, we got more information on our work in agriculture and other ways to uh, protect biodiversity and address climate change.
0: Well, thank you so much for your work, and thank you uh, for pushing forward the vision of um, an abundant society that works for pollinators, works for humans, works for soil, um, healthy water, deep, healthy soil. Uh, let's make that our future. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and I thank you so much for your time. I'm talking to you.